Just a warning, Classified, the podcast, may contain content which is distressing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode four of Classified, the podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Ray Robinson, and I'm here with our producer, Simon Shipley. Coming up on this episode, psychics. They're everywhere. TV, movies, and true crime, would you believe it? But are they real or are they a scam? We'll find out. Then, what is the first thing you would do if you were arrested for a crime you didn't commit? Really scary stuff. But coming up, we're going to have a look at the tragic and bizarre death of Phoebe Hanshook. It's definitely a case you need to know about. I discovered a case recently that I think is really odd and sketchy, and I don't think it's gotten a lot of publicity. So I thought it would be a really good one to talk about on the podcast. So on December 2nd of 2010 in Melbourne, Australia, the body of a 24-year-old girl named Phoebe Hanshook was found on the floor of a garbage compactor room in her high-rise apartment building. It was discovered that she had fallen from 12 floors up in a trash disposal shaft which led down to the compactor room below. The investigation into her death determined that she had survived the initial 30 metre fall, but she had severed her right foot so badly that she ended up bleeding to death while trying to fight her way out of the bin she landed in to find the door and get help. Her toxicology reports revealed that she had a very high blood alcohol reading of 0.16 when she fell. And she also had some prescription drugs in her system, primarily an antidepressant she was taking at the time and Stillnox, which is a sleeping pill. Her body was found with bruising around her neck, her wrists and her right arm. There was also blood and broken glass found around her apartment. The apartment was a terrible mess. It was never a mess. It looked most of the time as though nobody lived there. Later, police would find blood smeared on the door architrave, computer mouse and study desk. Police initially ruled her death a suicide, saying that she probably just climbed into the trash chute herself. A coroner concluded that she placed herself in the chute while under the influence of drugs and alcohol and she may not have intended to commit suicide and might have changed her mind and tried to get out, but that she did enter the shoot herself. After her death, people close to her, like her family and her friends, very quickly said that there was no way that she could have possibly done this to herself. And they were very suspicious of her boyfriend at the time. His name was Anthony Hample. He was 40 years old, so a lot older than her. And he was the son of George Hample, who was a prominent Supreme Court judge at the time. Not saying that means anything, but it's just interesting to note. Uh, Their relationship was strange to a lot of people in her life and from the outside it seemed like it never really fit to some people. They started dating and five months later Phoebe moved into his apartment in St Kilda which was in October of 2009. 
She was super creative. She painted and she lived in apparently a lot of clutter. He wanted the apartment to look like a museum and nobody lived there. And apparently it caused quite serious conflict in their relationship. Friends recalled a time not long before she died where she had gotten an ink stain on the carpet and she was frantic. She left work early. She hired a cleaning service to make sure that the stain wasn't there when he got home because he just would have lost his marbles over it, which is a little bit bizarre over an ink stain on the carpet. She told her psychologist, Joanna Young, that he would be very demeaning to her. He would put her down, make her feel stupid. Natalie, Phoebe's mother, like the rest of her family, doesn't for a moment believe that she did this to herself. And she said that she would drink in order to be more comfortable in social situations with Anthony. His friends were older, they were high class, they were wealthy. She wasn't super comfortable around them. And apparently she did use alcohol as a way to sort of soothe herself in those situations where she didn't really fit. She said that Phoebe once called her. She was very distressed saying that she loved Anthony and she did want to be with him, but that the relationship wasn't really working anymore. In the six weeks before she died, Phoebe supposedly walked out on Anthony four times and every time he would talk to her, convince her to come back and they would make up and it would be fine. The up and down nature of their relationship, I think definitely raised a lot of eyebrows after her death, particularly with her family and the strange way that she did die. Phoebe's grandfather, who was a retired police detective, said that he was meant to see her in that December for his 70th birthday, but obviously she passed away very early in December. And he instead decided to use that time to take a trip to her old apartment and examine the garbage chute himself. Being a detective for most of his life, he had a fairly logical perspective when it came to Phoebe's death, or as logical as as you can when it's your granddaughter. He couldn't believe how small the hatch was, being 37 centimetres by 22 centimetres, so quite small. And it was a metre above the bottom of the floor, so you would really have to lift to climb into it. And the jump would have been significant. When he looked at the chute, he said that there was just no way that Phoebe could have climbed inside the chute in her condition. She would have been uncoordinated given her blood alcohol content being three times over the legal driving limit. And she did have sleeping pills in her system, so it was a bad cocktail. Another thing which led to some skepticism about Phoebe getting in there herself was that there wasn't a single fingerprint found on the garbage chute, not the chute itself or the stainless steel surroundings of the chute. And that's really strange. It almost looked as if it had been wiped clean, which is a red flag for anyone. If you're incoherent and trying to stumble into a garbage chute yourself, you would definitely leave fingerprints all over the place trying to climb in. One big issue surrounding this case was the level of police incompetence that seemed to take place. Her grandfather may have had a bias in this case and how it was investigated, but he was known in the police force for being quite relentless with his cases. Does being a former police officer make it easier or more difficult, do you think? I was aghast at the things that have been not done properly. I mean, if you walked in there as a policeman, you would certainly be thinking, this is one out of the box. And you wouldn't be thinking, we're going to write this off as a suicide. You'd be thinking, we're going to look at every corner of this. He decided to look into the circumstances a lot himself when he didn't think that things were being handled quite as well as they should have been. 
Police apparently didn't examine any CCTV footage in the apartment at the time of Phoebe's death. There were some sort of suspicious shoe prints leading out of the apartment and around the garbage chute, and there were no samples taken from those shoe prints. And there were also some glasses found in the kitchen which had DNA on them, and none of that was ever tested either. There was an inquest into Phoebe's death in 2013, and at the inquest, Anthony said he came home, he found her bag, her keys, her wallet on the kitchen counter, broken glass and blood in the apartment, and obviously Phoebe was not there. They weren't able to prove that her death was a murder. Her family wanted to take the case to the Supreme Court, but they ran out of money to fund the case by that point. Phoebe's family believes that the justice system definitely failed them when investigating her death. This case captured more than just my attention. There's a podcast series called Phoebe's Fall, which was made by The Age, and it definitely put this case on the map to some degree. It would be impossible for me to include everything about the case in this podcast episode, but if you want more details, check out their podcast for the six-part series that they did into her death, and it definitely answers a lot of the questions that you might have. I'm not 100% sure what happened in this case, obviously. I think the evidence definitely points to someone else maybe being there. I'm not saying who that is because I obviously have no idea. It could have been Anthony. It could have been someone else. I think it was probably mishandled a little bit. I think that there wasn't enough digging that took place early on and the early on digging is sort of the one that's the most relevant. Hindsight can be 2020. But I think the fingerprint thing is what really gets me. I think in any circumstance, if she got in herself, there would definitely be fingerprints given the state that she was in. And if there was a struggle and she got in, there would also be fingerprints all over the chute. So I think the fact there's no fingerprints tells us that someone wiped it. And that's definitely very, very suspicious. I think it's a shame that there was sort of no closure in this case and it wasn't looked at by enough people, but that's why I do this podcast and I love talking about cases that I don't think have gotten enough attention and that you might be interested in as well. Coming up next, psychics and true crime. Is it a myth or is it legit? Let's find out. I want to touch on a somewhat controversial topic in this episode, and it's a topic that's everywhere, TV, movies, pop culture, and it's psychics. That might sound a little strange, but they do actually have a role in true crime, and I thought we could have a chat about it. Psychics have assisted law enforcement for decades with varied degrees of success. Some people swear by them, some people think that they're a complete scam and would go as far as to say that they prey on people's grief and vulnerability deliberately. So psychics have been used by the police to help catch killers, locate missing persons, and even try and get new leads on cold cases. Over the years, there have been cases which seem to prove some psychics might actually have genuine abilities and they want to help solve crimes. One such case was in August 2002 in the UK when two 10-year-old girls named Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman went missing from a family barbecue. Holly's family reached out to a psychic named Dennis McKenzie. He advised the parents that he thought that both girls had been killed. I don't think he phrased it like that. I think he was a lot more tactful. They're my words. 
He described a woman with a shrew-like face with brown hair and a man in his 30s, both with northern-sounding accents. He also said that the girls had been taken in a red car and wrapped in a type of carpet or wrap of some kind. He was even able to give a description of the view from the murderer's home. The girls' bodies were found and a man and woman matching the description Dennis gave were arrested. Even the view from the man's home matched the description that he gave to Holly's family. The man's name was Ian Huntley and the woman's name was Maxine Carr and both were convicted of murder. Holly's family praised Dennis for his involvement in the case and they believe that he genuinely helped police by giving them that information, which actually did turn out to be very accurate. Another fairly well-known case involving a psychic is the murder of Penny Sarah, a 21-year-old girl in Connecticut in 1971. A detective at the time who was working on the case asked to speak to a psychic named Pascarella Downey for her insights into the case. Downey claimed that the murderer smelled like oil and wore a mechanic's uniform. She also saw the letter E on a name tag on the uniform. She said that the killer wouldn't be caught right away, but that, quote, the blood will tell. 26 years later, Edward Grant, which starts with an E, was convicted through DNA evidence for the murder of Penny Sarah. He was also a mechanic at the time of the killing, so that explains the uniform. I'm not saying I'm convinced, but that is kind of crazy to get details bang on like that 26 years before any actual arrest happens. Of course, there are two sides to the coin. With success stories comes the scams, and there are definitely some of those as well. One of the most highly publicized cases with a psychic gone wrong was in 2011 in Houston, Texas. Police went on a manhunt in search of a mass grave, supposedly holding up to 30 dismembered bodies, including children. The police and the FBI raided a rural farmhouse. After coming up empty-handed, they called off the search. They found out about it because the psychic called and said that she was certain of this due to her psychic powers, but it turned out they were led on a total wild goose chase with no real evidence. There was a chance she was going to face criminal charges, but um, I don't believe that she ever did. There have been more cases of failed psychics than psychics who have been consistently accurate. Richard Kosas, an Australian forensic psychologist, says that trained profilers have proven to be more accurate than comparison groups of psychics when providing information about a potential offender. Psychics perform badly under studies and weren't normally able to provide information beyond common sense. I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate psychics out there because there may well be. I'm actually not a skeptic by nature, but I do think that there are a lot of fakes and liars out there, which makes it harder for potentially genuine clairvoyance to be taken seriously in this field. It's a really interesting topic to explore and I have no doubt that there will be other notable cases in the future who enlist the help of psychics, but I'm yet to be totally convinced. Coming up, what is the first thing you would do if you were arrested for a crime you didn't commit? Scary, right? Find out what I'd do next. My favourite part of each episode is hearing from you and answering some of your questions on true crime. I have some really good ones for this episode. The first one is, what do you think happened to Madeline McCann? 
23-year-old British girl has gone missing while on a family holiday in Portugal. It's been uh, confirmed by the Foreign Office. Uh, some more detail on this for you now. The Portuguese police are investigating the disappearance from a holiday complex in Praia de Lutz in the western Algarve. The Foreign Office spokesman has said that he understood the girl's parents had gone to have dinner once their children were asleep last night, but returned to check on them only to find that the little girl had gone missing. And uh, they reported the little girl's uh, disappearance straight away and they are uh, being given consular assistance in Portugal. But uh, no word on to where this uh, little girl has gone. I know this case has a lot of passion attached to it and people have very strong opinions about what they think happened to Madeline. I'm not 100% sure about any theory that I've read surrounding this case, but I do think the evidence leans more to some theories than it does to others. If you don't know about this case very briefly, Madeline McCann was a four-year-old girl who vanished from a hotel room in Portugal that her parents left her in with her siblings to sleep while they were out to dinner at the hotel restaurant with friends. I know that the sniffer dog evidence in the case has been a particularly hot topic. Madeline was said to not have been in the hotel room when the parents came back to check on them. But both dogs, one trained to detect human blood and the other the smell of dead bodies, both gave alerts in the hotel room, but not to any of the other locations that they were taken to. So if you aren't totally sure about the science of sniffer dogs, the, it, with the cadaver dogs, so the ones who smell dead bodies, the body has to have been left there for at least 90 minutes for it to detect it. So she can't have been lying there for a couple of minutes and then removed for the dog to get an alert. So it does go against the parents saying that they were regularly checking on the girls to make sure that they were okay because a body would have had to have been lying there for 90 minutes, which is a very long time to not check on your kids. The only other place that they gave an alert apart from the hotel room was the hire car that the family rented 24 days after Madeline's disappearance. Obviously, it's strange to get a hit on a location that Madeline was supposedly never taken to at any point because she was already missing. But this evidence isn't considered reliable by a lot of people because the science of sniffer dogs is regularly refuted. But it seems to me like it's a red flag. I'm not I'm I'm not saying that that means that the family was involved because I obviously don't know, but it's definitely an interesting piece of evidence to take a look at. There's theories about a burglary gone wrong, a deliberate abduction that she wandered off and was never found, all of which have evidence attached to them and people's theories and there's no one that's more legitimate than another at this point because the case has been cold for a while and we may never know. I'm not suggesting that they deliberately did anything, but both parents were doctors and there was a theory that Madeline may have been given a sedative so that they could go to dinner and that she may have been given a dosage higher than they had intended and she may have accidentally died. I'm not 100% sure on that either. A lot of it is purely speculation, so I don't want to attach too much meaning to that theory, but... The, the answer is I'm not totally sure, but I definitely think that the evidence lends itself to think maybe it wasn't an outside intruder and it might have been a little bit more close to home, but hopefully one day we'll know. The next question is, what is the first thing you would do if you were arrested for a crime you didn't commit? 
This is literally my worst nightmare. I have absolutely no idea what the first thing I would do is. I would have a grade A full-on panic attack before I did anything else. Full-blown anxiety attack. Um, I think I, I would want to call a lawyer, but maybe that makes me look guilty. It would actually kind of depend on what the crime was. If I was being arrested for murder, I mean, that's some really serious shit right there. But I feel like if it was for something smaller, I, I would probably, I'd, I'd call my family. I would. I'd call my mom. Actually, maybe my older sister. She'd probably be like, okay, let's get really real. We need to figure out what we're going to do. Whereas my mom would be like, oh my God, what's happening? I have no idea. That's a really tough question like detectives would be asking you questions you'd be being interviewed interrogated I'd want to fully cooperate because I wouldn't want them to think I had anything to hide but I also wouldn't want to shoot myself in the foot and say something that was misconstrued or used against me because I'm really naive and I just want to get myself out of the situation knowing me I would over explain over talk try to convince them that I was innocent and it would just totally I'd screw myself over Definitely. Like, I have the world's biggest mouth. Don't tell me anything. No one would ever enlist me to help them with any kind of crime cover-up or help them in any capacity, even though I would know what to do. I would be <laughs> I would be the person you should call. I know too much about crime. But I don't think anyone actually would because the whole town would know about it before. <laughs> the police would, would know because I probably told them. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. I want to know what you would do in this situation. So send us an email at classifiedthepodcast at gmail.com with what you would do if you were arrested for a crime you didn't commit. On the next episode of Classified the Podcast, we're going to be looking into how your journal could potentially convict you of a crime. And how would you bury a body if you accidentally killed someone? I have no idea. And we'll also be looking into the case of the Beaumont children. 52 years unsolved. We'll be looking at that in the next episode. Yes.